welcome to the Compel Podcast. I'm Lauren Dukeman, and today we are talking with Dr. Michael Haken, a church history professor at Heritage College and Seminary. We are delighted to hear how women have been involved in gospel spreading work for the past 2,000 years and can't wait to learn from our sisters in Christ who have gone before us. So join us as we hear how ordinary women spread the gospel story. Hello, everyone. It's Lauren here, and joining us today is uh, my professor, Dr. Michael Haken. He is the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as the director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies. He is an author, and one of his most recent books is Eight Women of Faith, which is an excellent introduction to eight women from church history. Well, thank you, Dr. Haken. Good for, to be with you. Yeah, we're so thankful you can join us today. Um, and it's just such a privilege to sit under your teaching and just to glean from your storehouse of knowledge. I feel like you know so much, and I, yeah, there's just so many things I, I've learned from you so far. But would you mind starting off by just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yep. Uh, so I was born in England. Um, my father is Kurdish from Iraq, and he came to study in the UK uh, in the late 40s uh, for engineering. Met my mom there. My mom was Irish Catholic. Uh, in the course of uh, their relationship, he decided to become a Catholic. So my grandfather would allow him to marry my mom. And so I was raised Irish Catholic. Uh, we came to Canada in the 60s, mid-60s, when my father became a professor at uh, McMaster University, mm-hmm. where he took an engineering position. And um, so I was raised in Ancaster. Late 60s, pretty strongly influenced by the counterculture. Um, I would have been a kind of Marxist in terms of political orientation. Some of the events of the late 60s, particularly Vietnam War, heavily politicized me. And uh, went away to university in the the early 70s. Uh, University of Western Ontario was my first uh, year. Uh, Then I went to the University of Toronto began to realize that Marxism had little to say about some key issues of life, namely what's after death, and began to search. Like many of my generation, searched uh, in Eastern religion, Zen Buddhism, Taoism. And then in God's providence, I met the woman who became my wife um, at a pizza parlor in Hamilton. <laughs> uh, I was making pizza, she was the cashier, and she was a Christian, hmm. and went to Stanley Avenue Baptist Church, and so I asked if I could go to church with her because I really felt that uh, I needed to clean my life up. I was thinking like a Catholic, you go to church, mm. do some external cleaning. And uh, that's where I heard the gospel, really, for the first wow. time. And was converted in the spring of 74 and sensed a call to vocational ministry. Really didn't know what that meant in terms of detail. Just thought maybe pastorate or missionary. But it became pretty obvious to me after a year that it was much more academic. And so I went on, did a PhD there at the University of Toronto Wycliffe College. Taught initially for about 10 years at Central Baptist Seminary, which became part of the school where we met, which is uh, Heritage. And subsequently taught at uh, Toronto Baptist Seminary for about four years and have been at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary full-time since 2006, uh, 2007, uh, but have also um, accepted a key role back here at uh, Heritage, um, Mm -hmm. where I've been teaching as adjunct since about 2011. Hmm. 
Wow. So how did you get involved in teaching? I know you mentioned the call, and they took it kind of an academic route. And then, I mean, you teach church history now. Did you fall in love with that along the way, or...? Yeah, I've always loved history, so I cannot remember a time I didn't love history. So my earliest memories of school uh, are of history, mm. doing a project on Augustus Caesar, drawing <laughs> a picture of him when I was about five. And uh, history has always fascinated me. I did, always did well in history, and I had good teachers in history, too. That's not always the case. History mm. can be a bit of a, a grab bag. For me, it was fairly easy. Um, I was never any good in the sciences. Mathematics is still a mystery to me. <laughs> so when I was converted, uh, church history was illogical. Hmm. Um, initially, when I went to seminary, I thought I'd end up in Old Testament. But as it turned out, um, it was church history. Mm-hmm. Well, could you just maybe just share briefly, like, what is church history in the sense of how is it different from normal world history? Who decides who get, gets involved in church history or what events are included in it? Yeah, so church history, uh, you can call it by the name of the history of Christianity. Hmm. I tend to now clearly call myself a church historian. I see my role as uh, helping the church, God's people, in a variety of denominational settings understand their heritage Mm -hmm. as Christians. And so church history then deals with really the history of the church and the church there being uh, the kind of Catholic uh, understanding of that term, not Roman Catholic, Mm -hmm. but the universal church, um, the church throughout space and time composed of men and women in different ethnic, geographical, different denominational settings. Anything in which the God's people have been involved really kind of falls within the parameters of church history. And so the way I normally teach it, I obviously look at theological controversies, uh, key uh, individuals, you know, like the Reformation Mm -hmm. being a controversy, or a key individual like John Wesley. But also I I, I do look at the larger socio-cultural background, because the church never lives out her witness in a given period without interacting with the larger culture. So to understand the church, say, in England, during the time of John Wesley, the Great Awakening, you need to know socially what's going on, mm-hmm. culturally what's going on, politically, etc. So church history then is uh, looking at the history of God's people throughout space and time. Up until 1800, most of it is focused in uh, Europe. But since 1800, uh, Christianity's gone global. And so now church history is really kind of a huge field because you now have to take into consideration things like the history of the church in Vietnam, Mm, history of the church in Zambia, history of the church in Argentina, where none of that existed before the year 1800. Mm. Before 1800, you basically were restricted to Europe, uh, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and the Atlantic seaboard in the uh, North American continent. Wow, that's a lot to study. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, and there is no church historian, uh, and I certainly would include myself in this, mm-hmm. and there's no church historian who can really do justice to that oh, yeah. breadth of material. And so the best kind of church history books are usually mm-hmm. edited versions of experts in maybe four or five key areas, right. say the sense. church in Africa, church in Asia, whatever. Right. You had mentioned that you want to kind of help preserve church history. 
it kind of tags along with the question, like, why is church history so important for us today? Why is that history so important for us to remember? Yeah, I think there are probably a number of reasons. Um, one of the, I think, key reasons is that God is deeply interested in history. Hmm. Um, as Christians, our faith is a deeply historical faith. It's not like Buddhism or Hinduism, where uh, Hinduism is definitely a flight from history. History is not important. Buddhism is uh, equally unconcerned about the historical narrative. Mm -hmm. For us, our faith rises and falls on a person uh, embedded in history, Jesus Christ. Um, if he's not historically real, we don't have a faith. Mm -hmm. If he didn't die, uh, we don't have a faith. He wasn't raised from the dead, we don't have a faith. So God's so interested in history that he accomplishes our liberation from sin, our salvation, in the context of the historical narrative of the life of the Lord Jesus. The Old Testament has frequent admonitions to remember. Right. Uh, we're to remember everything from Lot's wife, to remember what mm -hmm. God did at the Exodus, and we're to tell our children. We have that a number of times. Uh, tell your children what the Lord has done so that they might tell the next generation. And so we have a responsibility as Christians to know history, to be able to recount what the Lord has done. And um, history also is a, it's a great vehicle for learning. I think it, it's a place for learning humility because you start to realize how much you owe to others who've come yeah. before you. You stand on their shoulders. It's a great place for learning, um, I think, empathy. Because to understand history or right, you have to realize that the, his, the past is a foreign country and they do things differently there. Mm -hmm. And to really, you really have to kind of try to shed your own presuppositions to see things through somebody else's eyes. So why did John Calvin, for example, think it was quite acceptable to execute a heretic like Michael Cervantes? Whether or not he's right or wrong, and I think he was wrong, we first of all have to try to understand him. Mm -hmm. And that whole process of trying to understand another person is enormously helpful in, in daily life because it forces you to recognize you're going to have people who don't agree with you mm -hmm. and uh, without immediately jumping to, okay, well, they're stupid, they're wrong. Why don't they agree with me? And, right. and the whole, so the whole process of doing history helps, uh, helps you as a human being uh, empathize with others who may not agree with you in the present day because you've, you've hopefully learned the necessity of seeing things through other people's eyes. Mm -hmm. So there's a number of reasons why uh, history is important. Most importantly is that God takes history seriously. Our faith is a historical faith. God admonishes, to uh, admonishes us to remember uh, the past. Yeah, I think that's super helpful to remember and to call to mind. Um, you're currently teaching a course right now at Heritage. It's the great woman of the Christian faith. And I just learned so much from it. Like I'm embarrassed to actually say that before the class. I don't think I could name many women in church history. I think the few people that come to mind would mainly be even just women missionaries from the 19th to 20th centuries, um, like Lottie Moon and Amy Carmichael, um, Elizabeth Elliot and Gladys Elward. Is that how you say your name? And, but that's from watching a movie. Like, that's how I know about her with Ingrid Bergman. Um, I remember watching that with my grandmother, but that is the extent of my knowledge. Even listing specific women in the New Testament, I can name a few, but I couldn't name, like, what they did or how they were involved in helping the church. But do you have any insights to why we know so little specifically about women in church history? 
Yeah, I think partly because the uh, historical narrative of the church has been written by men. Mm. And um, I think for a long time, it's not only men writing history, but also the type of history they wrote. So they, they frequently wrote what we call intellectual history. That's the general category. And theological church history is seen from a theological vantage point. So looking at church history in terms of key doctrines mm-hmm. of the faith, uh, conflicts regarding those doctrines, um, the way in which those doctrines were defended, uh, etc. Uh, that's usually done by, by male theologians. So uh, because the history of the church has been heavily rooted in ideas, so Christ's death for sin, uh, the resurrection of Christ, uh, the Trinity, these sorts of which are absolutely essential ideas mm-hmm. for the faith. But the people who are often involved in writing about these have been men. Hence, uh, the contribution of women to the life of the church has been missed. In the last probably 30, 40 years, there's been a rise of what we call social cultural history, where uh, in, rather than simply looking at the intellectuals in a given society or the main, the main purveyors of media, uh, there's looking at, so what does it mean, for example, to have been a housewife mm. in Alberta in the 1920s <laughs> or, you know, a child in a Viking settlement? Oh, yeah, just normal people almost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so that's had a trickle-down effect into church history. So church historians now, because the training of historians involves looking at society and culture and quote-unquote ordinary people, uh, this has had an impact upon the church. So some of us, not all of us, have really kind of had to retool mm-hmm. the way we do history, rethink the way we do history. And so I've, uh, the course that we met in, uh, which was the women in church history, was basically my attempt to rethink the way I had been taught about women in church history, mm-hmm. which is virtually nothing. Yeah. And um, I had been taught the kind of great ideas approach, and instead of that, then, going back and starting to ask questions. So, okay, so who were the Puritan women, or who were the women at the time of the Reformation? What sources do we have from them? Uh, how can we learn from them, etc.? Yeah. I think when you don't hear about them, you just think, oh, they just weren't involved. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case when you go back and you're saying you're exactly. studying this, and they were involved. And it's just really encouraging, I think, as women to realize, oh, Women have played a part in the church for a long time, and that's just been really encouraging. But is this what is that kind of what led you to write a book and teach a class? Is just you wanting to share that knowledge, or was it something else? Uh, yeah, it really was uh, because um, after I had, because uh, I really started kind of focusing on women in church history probably in the early '90s is when I began to realize that uh, feminism as a cultural movement in North America had, was raising questions that uh, had to have some answers from a variety of Christian figures, New Testament scholars, Old Testament, whatever, but also church history. And I just realized if you've got women coming into a church history class and men who've taken a history course in university, they'll be exposed to women in the particular history course. Let's say it's the history of of Britain during the, you know, from 1815 to 1914. Well, there's no way a course like that would be taught today normally without 
significant reference to the role of women mm. in British society. So here you've got somebody who's, who's had that viewpoint. They then come into, a, a, say, a seminary classroom, and we teach history without any reference to women. I mean, one of the first questions is going to be hit. Mm. They're going to be asking the is, well, where are the women in this? Because they've been used to reading history that way. And so that was a, f a factor as well. And so I began to incorporate into my lectures in my normal church history survey, uh, you know, a, a lecture here, a lecture there about women, until I finally realized I, I, I probably got enough here for a book. <laughs> and so the book came out first. And then once the book was out, I had about eight chapters in the book. So you've got eight lectures. Mm -hmm. uh, you start to realize, well, this, here's the making of a, of a, of a course. You know, add another 15 or so, and you've got a course. And so that's the way the course developed. So we kind of talked about broadly why it's important to know about church history, but why is it helpful for us to know specifically about women in church history? Um, I think for men, I think there needs to be the realization that um, much of what they probably think about in terms of achievements in history of the church, uh, women are vitally involved in these things, all the way from you know, Phoebe in Romans 16 being the letter carrier of what we call the letter of the Romans, and may well have read that letter to house churches, um, all the way down to people like, you know, Gladys Aylward, missionary to China, Lottie Moon, missionary to China. Um, a lot of the missions that we've seen done in the past 200 years have been women. Mm -hmm. We regularly sing hymns, you know, Fanny Crosby, uh, Margaret Clarkson, uh, probably not Anne Steele anymore, but historically they would have. So women hymn writers. So to only concentrate upon men, we're really kind of robbing the church of half of her heritage. Mm. And then I think also it's vital today. I just don't think uh, we can get away with, and I, I, I'm not even suggesting we would want to try, but I just don't think we can actually carry on business as we would have done 50 years ago where it appears to an outsider that all of the core activity of the life of a church is men. Mm. And therefore, historically, it's the men who've counted. And the women turned up maybe to vote at this business meeting mm. or that business meeting. Uh, they kept house for the families of the men. Uh, there's a lot more going on in the life yeah. of the church than that. It's not a good representation of what God had planned. Nope. It's not representing, right? No. Nope. Throughout this class... I get, like in my past, like I've had a hard time summarizing what certain women, like even just Lottie Moon, like I can remember that she made lots of cookies, <laughs> but I can't really remember like what did she do? I don't remember. Or like Elizabeth Elliot, I know her husband died in Ecuador, but what did she do? I guess you forget that, oh, she was involved a lot in work. It seems to focus on just different things. But maybe a question that our listeners are wondering like, for themselves is how can we be involved as women in the Great Commission and just ministry around the world? For the past 2,000 years, that's been our call from Jesus to go make disciples of all the nations. And it has been helpful for me personally to see how women have been involved since the early church in gospel spreading work. You mentioned Phoebe. Yeah, so if we can start from the beginning, um, first with the first believers in the early church. Can you share how women in the New Testament were involved in ministry? More examples? Yeah, I mean, it's very clear from, say, Romans 16, um, where Paul lists about nine or ten women, where he talks about them having labored hard for the gospel. Um, uh, the word that he uses in Greek for labor, kopiao, uh, is a almost a technical term for Paul uh, to be involved in church activity. 
um, whether it's discipling other women, which Paul talks about in the pastoral epistles, mm-hmm. that women should mentor, older women should mentor younger women, or whether it's involved in some of the logistics of actual church planting. It's quite clear that Priscilla and Aquila are a church planting couple, mm. and uh, they're very, very much part of the kind of Pauline circle. They appear a number of times in kind of centers where Paul's active, uh, Corinth, Ephesus, then eventually Rome. So Paul doesn't delineate exact details, though he does indicate, for example, I mean, the book of Acts indicates that Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos. When they heard him speak, they realized he was not completely on target in some of his statements regarding uh, theology. They took him aside privately. And it does, doesn't say Aquila taught him, but Priscilla and Aquila. Mm-hmm. So Aquila is part of the conversation sharing with him um, her understanding of the faith and why Apollos' faith needed to be kind of strengthened and buttressed and um, etc. So women have been involved in, you know, uh, missions, church planting, the teaching of the faith to the next generation, discipling other women. That's especially needful in the Greek world because the way in which Greeks regarded the contact of women with men who were not part of their media family. Mm. That was really kind of taboo. And so you would need women to mentor women. Okay, I see, yeah. Was that, would that be a reason why maybe it was difficult for women to actually go? And, like, were there women who went as missionaries, or was it hard to yeah, I, I Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously Priscilla and Aquila, mm-hmm. you've got a couple there. Junia and Andronicus in Romans 16, that's another missionary couple. Uh, we do have a number of examples of women traveling by themselves. Mm, okay. Um, in the uh, Roman world. That's not impossible. That becomes a lot more difficult after the collapse of the Roman world with women traveling simply because of danger. Mm. But in the Roman world, it's definitely, I mean, you got Phoebe, for example. There's no indication that it's not clear whether she was married, widowed, or her husband went with her. None of that's told us, but she's the person who took the letter. So she could easily have taken it by herself. Mm. So there's a variety of ways. And then as you go on in church history, you start to to see ways in which women were writers, authors. Mm-hmm. And Dutton is a, probably the classic example here. Women as hymn writers, Anne Steele, and so on. Yeah, that's really cool. Because maybe they can't go physically, but that doesn't mean they're not supporting the work of the church. Maybe they're doing it from their home or through other means than going. Yeah, physically. I mean, today, obviously, there's ways in which women can work uh, out of the house in terms of a variety of things. There's a multitude of ways in the local church that women can be involved. A lot of the mentoring of women needs to be done by, I think, I think by women. Mm-hmm. Is it right to say, like, women today have a lot more privilege? Like, they, they are able to get education and choose a vocation, and maybe if they want to get married or not? Like, or is it an unfair assessment, like, oh, today we have so much better and have so many more options? Was that true in the past? or No, it wasn't. I, th- I think women have a lot more privilege today. Um, they have a lot more liberty and movement in, in our culture. 200, 250 years ago, uh, women did not live by themselves unless they're aristocrats. Mm-hmm. They would always live with their families. It's not as tight a social rule in, say, you know, uh, Muslim countries where single women would never live alone normally. But there was a social expectation that a woman would live with her family until she got married. And then once she got married, she would obviously move away. But if she was widowed, she'd often move back with her family. Hmm. So there are privileges today. Uh, education, 
women couldn't go to Oxford or Cambridge to get a university degree, the only two schools up until the 18th, up until the 19th century. Uh, they just couldn't go there. Hmm. So that that's all that's changed. Um, so yeah, there are privileges now that women would have that they wouldn't have had in the past. Hmm. I think another thing that can happen when I read about like Elizabeth Elliot or, I don't know, just great women of faith is that you just think, wow, they're just extraordinary. Maybe they're just super Christians. I can never be like them. Elizabeth Elliot's so devout and she persevered. But as we're reading about these testimonies of biographies, like what should our heart attitude be? Should it be to put them like in as something to achieve for? Or like, how can we learn from these ladies? Yeah, I think obviously learning is uh, what is technically called a, a mimetic uh, experience. That What that means is it's an experience of imitation. Okay. Uh, the word mimetic comes from mimesis, which means imitation. And so there is some degree in which this person's life and experience can be imitated. So what Elizabeth Elliot experienced, say, in terms of thinking about going to the mission field, uh, what that would cost her, that's helpful in thinking that through. If Mm. that's the way the Lord's calling you, then you can incorporate her experience into your own life so that her experience becomes something you imitate. Um, Obviously not slavishly, but we've, uh, we've got to recover a whole way of thinking about imitation. We tend to think of it as a much lower level of learning and have very little respect for a way of learning that includes imitation. Mm-hmm. We tend to think that imitation precludes thinking, whereas actually the ancients, this would include the Bible, see imitation as something that is the way in which we learn and, and grow in knowledge. And that's why we're, we're often told to imitate. Right. Like Paul said, imitate me. Maybe because it, it's practical, you can see it versus just yeah. oh, in a Bible. Well, how do you imitate that? Yeah, but, exactly. Hmm. So that's one way when I'm reading about uh, a figure in the past, uh, I have to be thinking, are there areas here that are applicable to my situation? Uh, similarities so that there, this is an area where I can to some degree imitate what I'm reading about. Um. Who is your favorite woman to study in church history? Do you have a favorite or one that you recommend um, people to study first? Okay. Um, yeah, I think probably, I mean, I, there are probably a number of women who I would regard as, you know, uh, ones who I feel are important in my own life. Macrina would be, mm-hmm. uh, who is the sister of Gregory Nyssa and Basil Caesarea. Uh, she comes across as a very appealing individual in many ways. Uh, all Very strong, but very appealing. I really like Esther Edwards Burr, who is the daughter of Jonathan Edwards. Her diary, just this, there's a realism there in her diary about the struggles of a young woman trying to live a faithful Christian mm-hmm. life in a very difficult scenario on the American frontier. Anne Dutton, who's increasingly in my mind just a remarkable Christian thinker. And then some uh, Christian poets, poetesses, hymn writers like Anne Steele. Mm-hmm. Uh, would be in that uh, and would be in that category as well. Yeah, I like that you mentioned Anne Dutton because I think a lot of questions people are asking, women are asking, like, oh, why should I study theology? Why does that matter? Why should I go to school for that? But maybe because they don't think women have studied it, there's a need for it. But Anne Dutton and so many women in the past, they have a great knowledge of Scripture and they have devoted their life to theology yep. or just knowing who God is and how to defend their faith. Yep. So that seems very motivating to me, like, oh, well, it's not. It's a new thing. It's, it's in history. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
I guess, yeah. Do you have any final word or to share or maybe action points for us? What should we do next? Like, should we read a book? Like, if you want to learn more about church history? Yeah, I, I think I would encourage women who are listening to this to, to start to get into history. I think it's very helpful to find a period that really you resonate with. Mm. So for me, uh, probably in the final analysis, it's the 18th century. I, I just really love the kind of that world in so many ways. And um, so I think that's important. So what that would mean is maybe getting an, an overview of church history, mm-hmm. just reading. Are, are there periods in this that really kind of twig? And then uh, once you find a period that really kind of excites your interest, then who are the women who are active in this period? And then starting to read two things. One is a biography. Mm-hmm. And then if you can find writings that they wrote. So we had a lecture today on a woman, a Puritan woman named Brilliana Harley. And I think what really helped her come alive for me was reading letters she wrote to her son yeah. uh, at university. So that's very, that's very important because there you're actually hearing the person themselves mm-hmm. in their own context. Biographies are important, but a biography is always written from our context normally, and it's going to have its own we're going to have our own biases, and there are things that we could miss. And so it's important to read both the biography, to have some idea of what's going on in their world, their life, but also to read the primary sources that were written mm-hmm. by the subject themselves. I like reading her letters because she sounded like a real person, like just shared her emotions and her heart for her child and her struggles, and yeah, it just made it a lot more relatable. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Haken, for sharing about church history with us. I'm really thankful that you took the time to sit down with us. My pleasure. Well, thanks so much for listening today. I hope you learned something new and were encouraged by what Dr. Haken shared with us. For more stories of women in church history, check out our show notes at compelpodcast.ca for our list of recommended biographies. And if you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Till next time.